The Stanley Cup, originally named the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup, has had only nine trustees since its inception in 1893. The team of trustees had the power to make decisions, such as determining who could challenge for the cup, as well as the conditions for it to be awarded to the various hockey teams from various leagues and various corners of the nation, and it continued this way until 1947. Sheriff John Sweetland and Philip Dankson, known as Petey Ross, were the original trustees of the Stanley Cup. In his early hockey administration days, Petey Ross befriended the sons of Lord Stanley himself, a partial reason why he was named trustee. John Sweetland, a physician, was the founder and first president of the Lord Stanley Institute for Trained Nurses in 1890. This was the first nursing school in Ottawa and included members on the board, such as Sanford Fleming. While established among influential circles, Sweetland was a simple and reputable choice to be appointed as a trustee. Sweetland was the first to pass on May 5, 1907. He was replaced the next day by William Foran. Foran served as a trustee for multiple different trophies, including the Prince of Wales Cup and the O'Brien Cup, both of which were connected to the upper echelons of hockey in Canada. During his tenure as trustee, Foran oversaw a tumultuous time frame of hockey as it moved from an amateur game to a more professional pursuit. As the game left the qualities of amateurism behind and a growing push for professionalism, both from a player and a financial standpoint, Foran shared a variety of interactions with an English immigrant named Frank Selleck Calder, most well known for his service as the president of the NHL. Born in Bristol in 1877, Calder frequently managed, interacted, argued, and bluffed his way to the top position of power in hockey, and eventually through his actions, consolidated the ownership of the best professional league moniker to the National Hockey League. Even today, his last name among most hockey fans will evoke some sort of recognition. After all, it is his name engraved on the front of the award for the most proficient player during their first year in the league. Over 100 years later, we as hockey fans are fortunate enough to experience the rewards of Calder's life's work. However, much has been written about how he gained control of the NHL, the Stanley Cup, and the teams that take part in the annual challenge for hockey supremacy. While not a villain in his own story, much of what occurred leaves significant room for differing opinions and how we interpret his legacy, especially when it comes to the power Calder exhibited, his actions to consolidate hockey, and the level of integrity required to do so. Hi, I'm Travis Duncan, and I can't pretend like I don't have time to start a podcast anymore. And this is Storytime Hockey. Born to Scottish residents living in Bristol, England, Calder moved to Canada in pursuit of an opportunity to continue his athletic career. While doing so, he accepted a job as a teacher in Montreal. In 1907, he left the role to act as a reporter for the Montreal Witness before moving on to the Montreal Herald. This is a trend you will notice as we dive into hockey history that the worlds of amateur and professional sports are heavily entwined with the world of newspapers and reporters. Naturally, as the main method of communicating information and sharing ideas, newspaper owners and those who worked in them could exhibit different levels of influence in their communities. Calder formed relationships with people that would develop into friends, colleagues, and confidants through his work in newspapers. These included reporter Elmer Ferguson, Ottawa reporter and future team owner Tommy Gorman, and Montreal sports baron Sam Lichtenheim. Calder was no stranger to the world of sports. 
named founder of the Montreal School Rugby League, as well as a secretary for the Montreal and District Football League. As a reporter, Calder began to make his mark, and this is also where we begin to see the type of individual that he was. His expose, written in the weekly publication titled The Wrestling Trust, exposed corruption within the professional wrestling circuit of Montreal. Calder was driven by high standards, as well as the integrity of sport. Frequently throughout his career, Calder put an end to cheating in an effort to preserve what he considered the purity of sports. In a strange turn of events, one of the revealed individuals from this corruption scandal in wrestling was George Kendall, sometimes known as George Kennedy. Kennedy was a wrestler who turned to promoting after his own wrestling career came to an end. Eventually, he and friend Joseph Pierre Gadbois founded the Club Athletique Canadien in 1905 in an effort to train and promote amateur wrestlers. They built the business and purchased the Montreal Canadiens Hockey Club in 1910. From this role as owner, Kennedy advocated for Calder to become the secretary and treasurer of the National Hockey Association in 1914, the same man who had ousted him in a corruption scandal in wrestling years prior. This is one of the original instances where the legacy of Calder becomes a conflict between the pursuit of power, influence, and fame versus the integrity of the sport he upheld so desperately. The Hockey Hall of Fame obituary summary of Calder speaks of how Kennedy supported and advocated for his friend, however makes no mention of their prior relationship. Calder and his philosophy of sports continue to replicate the larger social dynamic, as sports are moving away from being amateur to professional. In stark contrast with the sports that we consume today, professional sports were still relatively new. They did not necessarily mean that you can make your entire living off of that sport, and athletes did not necessarily have the same celebrated dedication to the professional game as they do today. Reporter Elmer Ferguson noted that Calder's stint in the Montreal Witness lasted, quote, from an hour to a full day when he discovered his new bosses did not like professional sport. The notion of professional sports being shady still permeated the subconscious of many. For example, the appropriately named University of Toronto boxer, Bill Box, actually turned down a contract offer from the NHL. His parents objected to the professional game. Despite celebrating and admiring the ability of athletes in the professional ranks, young athletes themselves and those who they trusted may not have been so keen to join the ranks of corruption, cheating, and being revealed. I won't delve too much into how the NHL conquered hockey to become the most dominant league in Canada and the US. That will be a future episode. What we do need to know, however, is that all the teams, save for one, resigned from the NHA, National Hockey Association, late in November 1917 and launched the new league, the National Hockey League, on November 26, 1917. Frank Calder was the president. Problematic, Eddie Livingstone, the owner of the Toronto franchise, was the only remaining owner and team in the former league, and the only owner not invited to the meeting at the Windsor Hotel in English Montreal. Either downplaying the importance of the meeting, or demonstrating the inability to see into the future, when asked what occurred as he exited the hotel, Calder replied, nothing much. From here, Calder was in charge of this fledgling professional sports league, overshadowed however by a much larger global conflict in the First World War. Elmer Ferguson reported it as a new sports body launched into war-torn space. The beginnings of the NHL and Calder's reign as chief of the new league signaled one other movement, the movement away from hockey as an amateur's pursuit and dedication to a business venture intended on making money. As an example of this train of thought already being present in the world at this point, at a meeting in 1911, 
Sam Lichtenheim, at this point owner of the Montreal Wanderers, staunchly defended the traditional game of hockey and its seven-man game. He believed that the discussion of shrinking the game to a six-person game would offend everybody in Canada. However, once he was made aware that the six-man game meant one last salary was required, he quickly became a supporter of this new version. The promoters of the new league were, as Bruce Kidd stated in his book, The Struggle for Canadian Sports, unabashed sports capitalists. Prior to this, amateur sports dominated as organizers dedicated their time to the development of values through the media sports. Values such as masculinity, nationalism, and certain character values. Contrary to this, the NHL sought to make money during a time where sports were being used to develop the next generation of man who might fight in a war, while at the same time trying to make money during a full-scale global armed conflict. Capable men all across the nation were enlisting in the Canadian war effort, and later on, whether by choice or by draft, the American forces. In an effort to navigate these new obstacles, the NHL created a team of military-serving men, the 228th Battalion, to try and manage a possible exodus of players from their league. The entirety of the nation had moved their forces towards fighting in the First World War. Yet in this context of a world war, Calder launched a new hockey league. The struggle for Canadians for their own national obsession to remain part of their conscious daily focus gives us an idea of what Calder's actions were like. With an uncertain future, Calder, in his pursuit of capitalizing on Canadian and American hockey, doesn't really paint a positive picture of the man. Over the next 20 plus years, Calder led the expansion of the NHL into the United States Northeast. He sought out the large bank roles of U.S. business and whether inadvertently or intentionally, forced out many smaller franchises, such as the Ottawa Sounders, who shut their doors due to financial losses over $60,000. During this time, the western portion of Canada had began to lose their professional or high amateur leagues as a side effect of the consolidation of power under Calder. Just take a look at the PCHA. Following this, the growth of hockey west of Ontario was stymied for an entire portion of young Canadians, a generation of Westerners, and it was not recovered until the larger rise of hockey operations across the country. At the NHL General Meeting on January 25, 1943, the focus was to be on two aspects of the hockey world. First, the expectation was that the schedule for the Stanley Cup playoffs was going to be released, this time featuring the first rendition of a playoff based in a seven-game series format. Later that day, discussion about the American war effort and the involvement of NHL athletes was to take center stage. The Brooklyn Americans were suspending their season as only four of their players were exempt from military service. The organization's focus on their youth movement to rebuild their squad was based on their 1941-42 regular season record of 16-29-3 and, and a negative goal differential of 42. This led them to sign a swatch of young, war-eligible men from the United States. Again, Calder presents us with actions that conflict our recollection of his legacy. While his support for the war effort this time was certainly larger than the First World War, he also used this opportunity to place among the owners an understanding that should the Brooklyn franchise attempt to return, that the revenue and the weak attendance that the franchise did represent was not a must-have for the league. In 1946, this is exactly what happened, as despite funding for an arena being procured, 
the League promised to return the Brooklyn Americans after the war was broken, leaving the League with six franchises that we celebrate today as the original six. Instead of a regular business meeting, things shifted quickly early in the afternoon session. Despite Calder insisting that he felt fine, Maple Leaf coach Half a Day remarked that he seemed off and looked like he was in pain. Shortly after, even Calder had to admit that something was wrong. Doctors from the Maple Leafs, as well as St. Michael's Hospital, confirmed that Calder was suffering a heart attack. For years, he had been the NHL's only employee, and unlike modern-day sports organizations, there was no real contingency or succession plan. Some sources mention his liking of a young lawyer named Clarence Campbell, who had left to go fight in the war. Doctors suggested that he rest for two to three months, and shared that he was likely not in any immediate danger. By early February, he was feeling better. Longtime reporter, friend, colleague, Elmer Ferguson, visited on February 3rd and observed that he was feeling fine and acting normally. Calder was surrounded by league papers outlining the reserve status of league players who were drafted to the U.S. military. Between the time that Ferguson left the room and the visit of Montreal Canadiens GM, Tommy Gorman, Calder passed away. Gorman was the first to find the hockey great dead, arriving in his room simply minutes afterwards, surrounded by papers focusing on the success and the stability of the league. Frank Calder had died February 3rd, 1943. In memoriam of their colleague and friend, many supporters of Calder discussed their strong feelings about the man, who had developed the NHL into the most influential hockey league in the world. Dick Irvin, former Hockey Night in Canada broadcaster, reminisced that despite the frequency that Calder dealt with difficult and naughty problems, as he called them, he never rendered an unfair decision. Red Dutton, former NHL defenseman and Calder's successor to the presidency, said, I can truly state that during all my dealings with him, I have never heard him say an ill word against anyone. Despite the accolades that come streaming in following the death of Calder, his legacy, like many from this era of sports history, leaves a legacy that can cause some apprehension. Lester Patrick spoke about the sense of duty and loyalty that Calder had, and how it is not frequently found in the upper echelons of professional hockey management. I'm not sure we should ever rewrite history. However, we should acknowledge the era where the events occurred and couple that with our revised social understanding. Calder no doubt needs to be considered among the top influential builders in the history of hockey, the NHL, and the global game. At the same time, we can still review his actions and his sense of duty and loyalty as only to those who were close to him, who supported him, and those who would align with his goals and vision for the NHL's future. Upon his death, the Montreal Gazette discussed the power of hockey in Canada, saying that if Canada has any one outstanding agency of Canadianization, it is universal national sport hockey, where for once the many schisms which beset the nation vanish. It continued to discuss Calder's aversion to the headlines, preferring the role of a public figure to be attained by the directors of the club, a shocking similarity to the role that Gary Bettman holds today. While Calder did not pursue national fame through hockey, he did pursue influence and power over this agency of Canadianization. Calder had a sensational opportunity to challenge those who wanted to be involved in hockey, and through his selection of who could and could not join him, he was able to decide who could take ownership, who could be involved, and who could shape the professional league 
that today guards a symbol of Canadian identity and nationalism. Some saw Calder as the antidote to this toxin that plagued the National Hockey Association in the form of Eddie Livingstone. This certainly aligns with a celebratory and traditional view of Frank Calder, usually presented to us by official NHL sources and the Hockey Hall of Fame. However, some looks into the life and times of this man demonstrate a confusing two-part legacy. In his pursuit of power and influence, Calder selectively chose and supported those who aligned with his ideas for the future of the game. He left his opposition to the footnotes of history. Secondly, once he achieved his position of influence, his efforts would remain focused on those select few whom he found himself loyal. In doing so, the legacy Calder left behind challenges us to consider the dynamic between influence and integrity. Does the position and capability to exert influence necessarily represent the presence of integrity? Under his watch, 10 Canadian franchises folded along with three of their American counterparts. He also challenged the trustees of the Stanley Cup, which during his lifetime was never controlled by the NHL. This is where we return to Bill or William Foran. When Foran, our trustee who we discussed earlier, threatened to take the cup away from the 1931 champions in the Montreal Canadiens, Calder had to decide to accept or to not accept the challenge from other leagues, in this case the newly formed Professional American Hockey League. Calder worked tirelessly behind the scenes to merge the Chicago Shamrocks from the Challenging League with the bankrupt Detroit Falcons resulting in the Detroit Red Wings franchise. The reversal of the AHL challenge led to a victory for Calder over Foran solidifying the NHL's ability to unofficially control the challenge and contestation for the Stanley Cup. Calder's life paved the way for the National Hockey League as we know it today to control the fastest game on ice. His name lives on in the league, as every year with discussions over one of the most well-known trophies in the game. Calder's place in the history of the sport will forever remain intact as the importance of hockey to Canadian nationalism shows no signs of dissipating, despite the growing challenge for the hockey nations. The next section will focus on players who you may or may not have forgotten about. With no real rhyme or reason to the selection of these players, this portion of the podcast will be dedicated to the players that score occasionally, get traded for second round picks, and sometimes even win an award. This is Storytime Hockey, the players you forgot about. One of the most time-consuming hobbies of hockey fans around the world involves the hypothetical trades that fans make in an effort to improve their team's odds of winning a championship, whether in the long term or the short term. Fortunately for the players in the National Hockey League, these armchair general managers don't have any actual impact on their careers. Too often we forget that these are real human beings with significant others and children doing a job that they're fortunate to have. General managers across the years have held on to players and avoided trading them, motivated by these humanistic tendencies to protect each other. Unfortunately for Mike Sillinger, he became the most famous outlier to this trend. A veteran of 13 NHL seasons and survivor of nine different trades between NHL teams, Sillinger proved that he was both valuable enough that everybody wanted him, while at the same time reminding us that these players are part of a ruthless business where they're often treated like assets. 
Sillinger broke into the Western Hockey League with Regina Pats in 1987. The year prior, while playing with the Regina Pat Canadiens Midget AAA team, he recorded 83 goals and 51 assists for a 134-point total in only 31 games. His team's second-leading scorer only had 86 points. Still an amazing stat total, but not even close. Clearly ready for the next step, Sillinger put up a respectable 18 goals and 25 assists in his first season with the Doug Souter Regina Pats. In Sillinger's second WHL season, he exploded for 131 points in 72 games. He was selected 11th overall by the Detroit Red Wings in the 89 NHL Entry Draft. He returned to the Pats for two more seasons, recording 129 and 116 points. His 116-point season was only in 57 games. He won gold with the Eric Lindros-led Canadian Junior Team in 1991. The following year, Sillinger played with the Adirondack Red Wings in the American Hockey League, recording 66 points in 64 games on their way to winning a Calder Cup playoff championship. Sillinger becomes a fascinating player as his NHL career began to develop. He broke in with Detroit in the 1992-93 season and then lost a year because of the NHL lockout. He played 13 games that next year for the Red Wings before he was traded to Anaheim. In 1996, he was then traded from the Ducks to Vancouver, and again traded in 1998 to the Philadelphia Flyers. In 1998-99, he was moved to Tampa Bay mid-season, and was moved the following year's trade deadline to the Florida Panthers in March of 2000. The next trade deadline in 2001, he was moved to the Canadian capital Ottawa Sounders, marking six trades within seven years. In the offseason, Sillinger signed a contract to join the Columbus Blue Jackets, a move he finally had the ability to control the outcome. Following his second season in Columbus, he was moved to the Dallas Stars before being dealt that same day to the Phoenix Coyotes. Cue the trade deadline move again as he was sent to St. Louis in 2004. He finished the season there and then set out the next year for his second NHL lockout. The following season, he started out in St. Louis was moved to Nashville in exchange for color commentator nightmare Timofey Shishkinov in January 2006. His move to Nashville set a new record for most teams played for by a single player, beating previous record holders Michael Pettit and J.J. Dejanot. The following year, via free agency, Selinger joined his 12th and final team in the New York Islanders. He played his 1,000th game in November 2007 and retired at the end of the following year, his 17th in the NHL. Hip surgery and complications from those surgeries forced him to miss significant portions of the 2008 and 2009 season. He announced his retirement in the summer of 2009. Sillinger concluded his career with 240 goals, 548 points, and played in 1,049 games. His career proves to be one of the most interesting stories of the modern NHL demonstrating a difficult sacrifice required by athletes that take part in professional leagues. Sillinger began dating his wife Carla during his final season of junior hockey, and she had to help carry the burden, along with their family of three boys, of Sillinger's travels across the NHL. Sillinger openly acknowledged that the trades were more difficult on his family as opposed to him. Professionally, he was often moved from a non-playoff team to a team with larger playoff aspirations. 
in an interview discussing how difficult trades were, he reflected on the strain moving from Anaheim to Vancouver at the age of 24 and that being the most difficult trade. He and his wife were starting a family and they had purchased a home. It is in this attempt at a quote-unquote normal life that the frailty and uncertainty of professional sports is perfectly demonstrated. Sillinger probably had the best mentality that you could have for someone who would be put through nine trades in 12 different cities. He frequently spoke of his wife being his biggest supporter, both on the ice and off the ice as well. He also emphasized that his trades were not a reflection of his playing ability, but usually contract and salary. For Sillinger, there was always an opportunity to be part of a new team, new goals, new aspirations. Sillinger, in an interview where he was advising future victims of the NHL trade market, reminds them not to feel sorry for themselves or to take it personally, because in the end it is a job and it is a business. Despite how many times you're traded or you move teams, there's always a focus on the end goal. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, the former 37th overall pick of the Swamp Donkeys men's over 35 team. Thank you for listening. Please click like, subscribe, or whatever other option is provided to you by your podcast platform. Every review, rating, and comment that you leave behind increases the odds that this podcast will appear in someone else's suggested podcast list. So be a good neighbor and hit five stars. Thank you again for listening, and we will talk to you next episode.